Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Morning Shot Uncut. For those of you who have subscribed to Substack, thank you so much. If you wish to support us in a material way, Substack is the best way to do that. Please do become a member. It costs, I don't know how much per month, I think $5. And with that money, we're going to make a lot more great content on YouTube and bring you better quality podcasts. With me today is Byron. He is not being a poncho this time, which is a development of sorts. Hello, Byron. Hello, everyone. I like my poncho. It's very warm. Allows me to gain access to my firearm really easily. And to be honest, it's probably one of the best, most enjoyable conceal concealment uh, cloaks I have. Far better than a jacket, although I know you disagree. Yes, jackets are superior in terms of sartorial elegance, in terms of practicality, and in terms of looking like a man rather than some Mexican under a tree. But anyway, enough about that. Looking like a man, something your wife's never said to you before, eh? Oh, she says far better things to me. Everyone can just be a man. I'm a bit different. Anyway, this podcast is not about Ramon's sex life or lack thereof. So, what do you yeah, We know that it's lack thereof because you've got two kids. <laughs> and I assume they are mine. I don't know. That's only an assumption I can make. <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway, um, what's been happening, Byron? What's been the news? Because I've got to prepare for this podcast, and there's just the re repetition of cuck we said before. So I said, let's just record and let's see what comes up. Okay, so the first item that's in the news today is uh, apparently the DA have retained their ward in Chatsworth. So for those of you who don't know, Ramaphosa went to Chatsworth and begged the Indians there to please vote for the ANC and not the DA because, you know, the DA is racist or something. And the people in Chatsworth basically said, book off and voted for the DA in even larger numbers. So well done, Ramaphosa. Own goal. Yeah, there was another ward in the KZN where the ANC sent like 1,300 rand food vouchers or bags of food or something like that. So the people chowed the food and then voted for the IFP. Based. Well, we've seen this more and more and more now. The ANC, once upon a time, could just like get its way by buying everything, right? I mean, they had access to the, the state's coffers and, you know, people would go off and do their thing. But nowadays, people will take what the ANC is giving, give a smile, have a little pat on the back, vote for someone else. So we've seen this more and more. I mean, we've also seen this now with the EFF. People take t shirts, little caps, go off and vote action essay or something so new era of politics i'm afraid new era of politics yeah give the people what they want and then they vote for someone else welcome to democracy anz hope you do like it but byron on a serious note i actually did want to talk about a follow-up to a video we made quite a while ago and the video was titled why people should not immigrate or something to that effect and i noticed someone saw it very recently like this week this video is like over a year old someone watched it and like we need an update to this are you still not immigrating so i thought we could discuss that because i'm not immigrating i think the video stood the test of time i basically said i don't know if you were on the show back then but we basically said listen south africa is falling apart the enclave system is upon us nothing's really going to change we're going to drag along the bottom for the next 10 years irrespective of who takes over in government and therefore, it is the perfect place to be sort of very, very free as a person 
which gives you the ability to sort of negate the worst effects of the state failure. So we are going to be a pioneering state in terms of being a stateless society. And nothing has changed. Everything has basically accelerated and made that point even more pertinent than ever before. So I'm not immigrating at all. Like, what about you? Yeah, so that video itself, um, the we've actually had quite a increase in the number of comments on it. So I think a lot of people are obviously getting a little bit hutful of the states of South Africa, and then they're looking for videos online on why, this, why should they stay? Looking for someone else to convince them there's a good idea to keep persevering with what we're experiencing. So we've actually had quite a few comments on that video with a lot of people saying this video did not age well, except the kind of did, because the whole point of the video was we said that in first world countries like America, Australia, and, and England, if they wanted to go tyrannical, the countries work quite well and that they can. We also said that the cost of living in those places would start to start to eat or bite of those individuals and that would have economic consequences which would make living there very difficult. We also said that the states of South Africa would continue to decline. We said, don't worry about it, you're never going to get state control here because we don't have electricity. And since then, we really don't have electricity. We also said that it's very difficult for the government to come here and get tyrannical because they can't even stop the place from rioting every other day. And since then, well, there's more riots every day. So... What is essentially happening in South Africa is actually exactly what we said. But we said that South Africa was a very free place and we wanted to stay here because it was free. And all the reasons we highlighted for why it was a free country have just continued to escalate. So why a lot of people sat there saying to us, well, this video didn't age well, is a little bit puzzling for me because we said it was a great place to live because it was crumbling. We didn't say it was a great place to live because it was increasing in standing. We didn't say things were getting better here. I don't think we've ever made that claim on any video we've ever done. No, and that is not the claim we make at all. We, 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 we're not saying things are better because there'll be a better government. Things are better because the government is fucking up. Like That has always been the morning shot claim. And the past year has really accelerated the fucking up part. Of government, And if you look at this debacle with the, the sort of Russian arms that were or were not sent, we still don't know. If you look at this non-alignment stuff, that's really not aligned at all. If you look at state six load shedding, I think we had load shedding every single day for 2023, save for two days, which is like a huge, like massive, and sort of no one really cares. And if you just look at the state of degradation, you look at business giving up on the ANC, you look at sort of our polls acquired quitting last year. This is all positive news for the people of South Africa because, once again, our thesis is we are living in a stateless society with the most freedom and all you have to do is negate the worst effects of that freedom and everyone else's freedom upon you. Nothing has changed in our analysis at all. No. As we're looking back on some old videos and looking back at commentary that's been made on it, something else I thought uh, I would uh, we could talk about Ramon, and that's actually in relation to some of our gun rights. So we recently did a video where we basically said all of the NGOs were talking crap and that you can't really believe anything they say and never give up your ability to have guns. And one little twerk came on and basically said, why? 
guns are bad. You don't want guns. Look what happens when you cancel guns in New Zealand and Australia. Yes, and I think the person completely lost their marbles because they didn't really understand what we were saying. And the fundamental thesis behind everything we said is, we are not fucking England and Australia, you knobheads. Right, so the other side of it is, we are incredibly pro-gun. We have made it known to the imps of the earth. We are incredibly pro-gun. Why would anybody these days come on any of our videos and assume otherwise? Do they not watch any of the content that we produce? Well, no, probably not, Byron. We do have like 400,000 people that watch our show every month. They or, or Each of them watch at least one video a week, so no doubt they can't watch all of them. Pity them. And also, that's a bullshit claim, right? Australia had one mass shooting, and therefore they banned all guns, and now there's been no more mass shootings. Yeah, gun crime was declining way before that so-called mass shooting. Same as in England. I think well, England or Scotland or Ireland had a school shooting in 1996. I can't remember. I know Port Arthur was Australia. I can't remember Britain. Um, there's also, I think it was a school shooting as well. But gun crime was going down. It was a school shooting. It was with very young kids. Very, very young kids. But look at the stats. The crime was going down anyway. The banning of guns made no difference at all to the crime. And now it's actually rising, thanks to night. Actually, actually, actually increased. They actually increased, so that's that's slightly inaccurate. So what actually happened with it is that guns, the crime relating to guns, did actually go up following the banning. But obviously it was illegal guns, which everybody conveniently ignores. Yeah, but at essentially, if you're in South Africa and you're sort of anti-gun, I don't think you're going to make it. Not in terms of your life, I'm just talking about in terms of having the mindset required to live here in a prosperous mm. manner because every pioneering state needs armed people <clears throat> you can't rely on anyone else no and i would agree with that but you know Ramon, i thought actually you know what else we could actually talk about we could do some follow-ups on some other videos we did let's start off with the da i don't know about you man but at the moment i'm not feeling the love for the da yeah? like i feel personally to me like they've had an opportunity to galvanize a coalition around the country. They've managed they've had an opportunity to galvanize the opposition parties to the ANC. And I personally feel like they've completely fucked this up. What's your view? I agree with you. So I mean our thesis as it, as it has always been is like South Africa is a nation of nations. There's twelve distinct tribes in South Africa and those tribes are finding out that the democratic process is working out not so well for them. So they're not, they're not really going to vote for an idea. They're going to vote for what they know, which is their identity. So you can see, so you can see this fracturing of the electorate, the fragmenting of the electorate based on identity and ethnicity and things like that. So if that is the case, the DA is sort of in this odd position. They are a centrist, pragmatic, liberal party with 25% of the vote, which is huge. A massive achievement. It's something that they should be congratulated for. It's the only thing in Africa, as far as I know, to have that much power as the Liberal Party. But what they want to do is sort of like everyone else that they work with must sort of be liberal as well. Which is not going to work out terribly well because actually say, yes, they've, they're liberal. That's fine. ACDP are too small to care, so they'll join. They don't really mind. 
IFP is a sort of Zulu Nationalist Party, but they're on the way up, so they're sort of working with the DA. But there's a lot of parties that don't want to work with the DA because they don't want to be like be succumbed to the DA. They don't want to be like the little brother of the DA. They've got their own independence. They'll work with anyone, such as the Patriotic Alliance in this case. And I think at the end of the day, for the DA to sort of shut out these people of any potential coalitions in the future, based on the fact that these guys, the PA, are in coalition with the ANC and other parts of the country, you're sort of narrowing the scope for your moonshot pact arbitrarily because there are a lot of other parties who are in cahoots with the ANC all over the country and there's no sort of standard for those guys. But most importantly, you can have a sort of national agreement, but you sooner or later you'll need a provincial agreement. If 2024, if the election in 2024 is as fractured as we think it might be, we could have different governments in different provinces under different agreements. So I, I just don't understand the DA strategy for now. I, I really don't. And I don't think it's helping them in any way whatsoever. I don't think the DA does have a strategy when it comes through to any of this. And that's that's ultimately the problem. You see, the strategy that they tell the public isn't really the strategy that they put in place, right? They're telling everybody that, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to do anything possible to uproot the ANC and get them out of power. All while saying the biggest fear in the country is that we have an ANC-EFF coalition. So let's think about this. They say there's two main claims there. We will do anything to get power back. Fine. Give the PA and some other parties power. Oh, no, we won't do that. Okay, we'll elect the action SA man. No, we won't do that. Okay, well, then you're not willing to do anything, are you? The next thing is you're like, okay, claim number two. Oh, the biggest threat to the country is the ANC and the EFF working together. Okay. But then they force the ANC and the EFF to work together in pretty much every municipality around the country where there was a, a minority a coalition government. So you training the EFF and the ANC to work together. So your two claims that you made are both bullshit. You said, oh, we'll do anything to keep them out of power, but you won't. You don't want these two to learn to work together, but you force them to work together to learn to work together. Mate, it's complete horseshit, and it's the DA's fault. Uh, that's a very good point that you make because they're like, oh, a national election with the ANZ EFF in control of the country is like the doomsday pact or whatever they call it, the axis of evil. But you are absolutely correct. By not working with the ANC in Gauteng or Joburg or Pretoria, they're forcing the ANC to work with the EFF because that's the only one left. And by not working with the PA, they're forcing the PA to work within the so-called axis of evil because the PA is very honest about what they want. They work with anyone in order to gain power, to give service delivery to the people that voted them in. So, by being a hot-ass about so-called principles, you are basically forcing parties together, which make up your worst-case scenario. You're absolutely correct, Byron. I just don't see a strategy. Like, it's actually... No. And if you think about it, they're telling us what their strategy is. We will do anything to get them out of power. Well, no, you won't. We'll work with anybody, except, no, you ain't. We're, we All we want is the ANC gone. Well, clearly you don't, because you're giving the ANC power everywhere. So then the other claim was, well, it's just Le Sufi, right? It's just Le Sufi doing his thing, a Gao thing. You know, we'll never go anywhere else. Except we now have a load of municipalities, even in the Eastern Cape, 
with the ANCEFF people and some in the Northern Cape. So this is now becoming national. Right, so what was the whole idea? It was just Lucifer and Gauteng doing his own thing. And it was all against all the, all the big shots' wishes. Remember that? It's not, man. It's national. It's it's everywhere now. You've got Ditsli Botla. Remember? Ditsli Botla has a collection between ANC and EFF. Ekruleni has Durban, mate. ANC, EFF. And very soon, Nelson Mandela Bay. ANC, EFF. It's national, mate. So that DA are forcing these two bedfellows to basically wed and figure out how to swap vows in order to keep each other happy. Had the DA not done that, this would never have occurred. Everybody would have continued to do the exact things that what we say, which is they would never work together because they'd never know how to, right? And they'd never agree on anything. Except now they're learning through experience how to work together thanks to the DA. I don't see the strategy I'm in. Yeah, so to play devil advocate, the DA might be thinking to themselves, listen, like getting power in Houting is such a pain in the ass. Right, Sadia's Brink is now the mayor of Tuane. Bloody hell, two weeks after he's sworn in, there's a cholera outbreak in Hamanskral in Pretoria. And the DA must be thinking to themselves, look at us, we're in power, seven years of, they've been in power for seven years, they're on and off for the most part. And then like, you see, now we have to deal with this shit. We're going to be blamed for what was done before we were up in power. So maybe getting power in Gauteng, for now, based on the numbers, thanks to the local government election, maybe it's just not worth it. Because maybe it destroys the credibility of the DA brand, which is service delivery. What do you think of that devil's advocate? Uh, could be plausible, mate. Could, maybe... But then again, you know, we sat down with John ourselves and said to him, John, would you really want to be president? He goes, yeah. We both look at each other and think, like, who the fuck would we going to be president in this place? Like, fucking hell. Imagine trying to fix this country. Shit, like, fuck that for an off. I'd rather, I don't know, sell McDonald's burgers. But with that, with that all being said, that might, that might very well be the case. I mean, I must say that even in Nelson Mandela Bay, it's a, a great example of it, is how, how can you ask for service delivery now in this place? Every other week, they want to change the the mayor and you know the MMCs, and they are running out of people to nominate and put forward for these positions. You know, they've only literally got the retards left. All the good ones either resigned in frustration or went off and did something else, like I don't know, selling drugs or whatever the ANC people do after they leave ANC. You know, like but at the end of the day, the people that are left now to actually run the portfolios are just freaking retarded, mate. And that goes for all the political parties. In some respects, even the DA is like it. And it's funny because you and I both know DA councillors that are like, you know what we really want? We want to be P, PR, proportional representative councillors. We don't actually want to win a ward. Because the minute we actually win a ward, it's like, fuck, we actually have to deal with that ward, deal with the people of that ward and try to get something for them through the failing infrastructure. They're like, as much better to be in opposition because then you can just sit there and basically criticize the party for not doing their job a job that you know we also know some da councillors that when they win their ward they're actually a little bit upset because <laughs> they're like shit now i have to make this fucking work i think the problem is that when you get into those positions knowing full well 
that the mechanisms or the structure behind that aren't actually there to support you. They're almost there as a hindrance. It's not a pleasant job, mate. It's not a pleasant job at all. And so it's a job with zero. It's a, it's a zero sum game. You can't go in there and win anything. So maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. So uh, we we both agree. Like the constitution and laws in this country sort of paralyze actions, right? If you want to do something, the concourse stops it, or the act says X Y Z must be done first. Like it's very difficult to get things done in South Africa. So I watched a video about of. Uh, Bukele, Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador, and now he came into power. And interestingly, what he's done is basically suspend the constitution for the last year or so. I think we've spoken about this before. Suspending the constitution has, has taken all the power for himself, including the judiciary. He has brought down the, the crime rate dramatically. He's increased spending on health and education and, and all sorts of things. That cannot be possible under a democratic system. You sort of have to take a country by the scruff of his neck and force it to happen in some way, i.e. maybe like suspend the constitution or something to that effect. So I saw Charles Salias from the PA on a, on a podcast talking about this. And he's like, you know, this country has gone so far leftwards that you, democratically you can't move it any other way. It's sort of drifting off at sea somewhere. So what Gator McKinley wants to do is suspend the constitution take the country back over the course of, I don't know how many years, set it on track, and then sort of put the constitution back in place. And if Bukele is the example to follow, I mean, can you really hate the man? I know you said the system doesn't work, especially for the DA as well, but no one's provided a solution to that, other than the PA in this regard. Well, what's your idea about that? Because I know both of us are not really that democratic. No, and I suppose the the concern that you have is the old kind of Julius Caesar thing, right? I mean, Julius Caesar was granted powers by the democratic state in order to become dictator, in order to rescue it from the barbarians. Man, he never gave the power back. Huh? I mean, he just became de facto emperor of the place, killed the bureaucracy, and off he went. And obviously, as emperor, he started to, after a while, run the that place into the ground as well so you know it's 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 all good and fine when you've got a benevolent dictator not so great when you don't huh? so you know it's like almost going back to the days of having kings and queens i mean that's really what a modern dictator is right it's just a medieval king by by a different name well which is far better than an elected bureaucrat i mean rome had five successive good emperors Right, which started with Nerva and ended with Marcus Aurelius, the the great Stoic, and Rome thrived in that time because you have this ability to have a, a long term strategy for the place. It's what the CCP does in China. It's what Putin does in Russia. It's what Lee Kuan Yew did in Singapore. It's what Viktor Orban is trying to do in Hungary. It's it's we can say it's not democratic or there are pitfalls or things like that. True, true. But when it worked, it worked bloody well. Yeah, but the problem is, mate, as much as I had said, who would you trust in South Africa with that kind of power? Well, myself, of course. You're not on the electorate baron, mate. And that's that's the problem, right? I mean, in South Africa, we, as Rob Hurst 
I've always says we're not exactly governed by the best and brightest, right? I mean, we're governed by complete arseholes who have their own interests at heart. We see this time and time again. Let's use the example of NHR. It's all being pushed forward by one arsehole. And I do mean an arsehole because it's an arsehole who refuses to see any form of any form of logic. People tell him we can't afford it. He's like, I'm doing it anyway. He's like, we don't have the services yet. I'm doing it anyway. It would completely collapse the country and crypto and debt. I'm doing it anyway. It's just some arsehole who's decided that he wants to do this if it's the last thing he does in his life. Obviously, noticeably Nicholas Crisp is the head of the NHR for the Department of Health. Right? I mean, this this is who this is who we've got in South Africa. We've got nobody with practic any form of practicalities. We've got a shrinking tax base, and all the time is we got morons that are just like, ah, you know what we should do? We have less money, so logically, the best thing you can do is spend more of it. Okay, clearly economics wasn't on the top of your your class list, right? But this comes back to the same question: so who the hell would you give that kind of power to? We're a country full of morons. Well, I think there could be one or two people that could be given the power. I can't think of them off the top of my head, if I'm really honest with you. But No, you're going to be thinking a long freaking time, mate, because even I can't think of them. Not even me. I can't even say I'd... Mm, fuck I'm, I'm good, man. I could do it. And before and before anybody even turns around and says, I wouldn't even give John Steenays in that kind of power. Like, fuck, we'd have bloody transgender toilets everywhere and dad dancing everywhere and like ah nah that's not for me man but with that being said it's like who who the hell would you give this kind of power to man it's like Helen, Helen Zeller she's obviously the best one I'm not even being I'm not even joking I think she could be quite a good dictatress if that's a word she's too she's too democratic to be a dictator that's the problem you know that's that's the problem but anyway, let's move on to the, the next actually thing, which actually brings us on to a, a different podcast we actually did before. And that is, I don't know if you've seen now, the um, the head of the BLSA, that's the uh, Black Leadership South Africa Forum. Anyway, she's, uh, that's Bussy. Bussy's like proper outspoken. She's, uh, she's what a... Unity. Yeah, she's, uh, she's, she's proper one of the, she's one of the good ones. Like she's a, She's a really good lady. She's not the one of the corrupt bullshitters. She just wants to make some cash and, you know, do whatever she does in her own time. Anyway, she says that uh, South Africa is becoming really, really difficult to sell as an investment destination now and that East Africa is actually taking all of our opportunities because whenever she goes anywhere, everybody just says, like, South Africa, nah, it's not for us. I know you've got a view on this because you speak to some fund managers. Well, yeah, I've got a lot of friends overseas who work in hedge funds and things like that. And I keep telling them, why don't you invest like a morning shot? You could do with like a million dollars, you know? And they're like, as soon as something from South Africa comes in the death, they don't even look at it. They're like, ah, if morning shot was in Kenya, maybe. <laughs> but no, the appetite for investment in South Africa is not even low. It's non-existent. Hedge funds, in, other funds, investors are not even looking at us. We don't even think uh, on the table of like pitch decks. It goes everywhere else. They'd rather go to Mozambique, funny enough, because there's more certainty there. Yeah, I know. And I suppose uh, this actually became interesting for me because I know you haven't read the article, so I'm obviously entertaining you on it. But uh, she says that apparently the most thriving entrepreneurial sector now of South Africa comes out the township economy. 
And she actually says the reason that the township economies are the most thriving economies in South Africa is because the state is incapable of interfering with them. What do you think of that? I'm not surprised at all. I think it's called Cassinomics. There was a, a meme, a, a book written about the township economy and how much money is actually in it. Which is why I think the unemployment numbers and all that is complete bullshit, right, for the most part. I think unemployment rate is high, but not, not as high as 50% or whatever it is at the moment. I mean, townships like cash, cash, cash-run businesses, don't pay tax, don't, don't follow labor law. It's a perfect, perfect black market, which increasingly is what the South African economy is becoming. And you can't put a number on that. You can't put it on your statistics. You can't put it on your GDP. None of that stuff. I know the township economics, I think in the article, it's 600 billion rand or something per year. And none of that's going to the state. So a lot of people might think, well, you know, we're worried about our business. Well, just follow the township guys. Who says blacks can't be entrepreneurs? They, they are great entrepreneurs. They just don't showcase it by paying taxes like the whiteies. Ooh. See, it's funny. So she says that uh, small businesses were bypassing the government and making a plan to trade in everything from vegetables and groceries to car parts. As a business person, I have to take courage from that. Township economies could grow faster and bigger if only the state could give guarantees to them that provide them with a measure of safety. What do you think of that? Well, safety of what? Uh, I'm glad you asked. She means safety from the state. So what they do is they keep themselves small and limited to the township economies rather than growing into the multinationals because they don't want to get the eye of the state. Oh, right. So it's very similar to like what we do with BE. <laughs> Stay small on purpose. <laughs> so we don't have to partake in this rigmarole of like pencil testing every one of our employees. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it would grow if the state was able and willing, but it's not, so it's a bit of a silly point to make. Well, I don't think it is, because obviously a lot of people don't look at the township economy as actually being anything of value, because I say, like, obviously they all think small sponsor shops, like, you know, sponsor shop couldn't go national. And according to her, yeah, some of these could, but the problem is the minute they go national, they gain government attention. They don't want that government attention. So they're deliberately keeping themselves as smaller enterprises in order to evade state control and state state, uh, state oversight. I think it's a very interesting idea, really. Um, it's also interesting that she says that she takes courage from the fact, as a business person, that basically there's uh, small enterprises there going unnoticed by the government. That's interesting. Yeah, same. Same. I mean... You know, there's always, I mean, the formal economy is, is is very important. Don't get me wrong. It is very, very important. But the informal one is much more interesting and dynamic and hidden. And I think it has far more value than most people would, would ever see in their lifetime or un, try to understand. It might be a good idea to go to the township one day and just like sort of talk to, to business owners. I, I think I'd said on the previous podcast, I went to a magistrate's court in Palm Ridge the other day near Fosloris and I went there 20 years ago and then I went again there in 2019 and just the, the state of sort of acceleration of infrastructure and businesses on the streets and things like that it was just immense immense and this was all done without central planning without the government wanting it to happen it's just people looking after themselves building businesses trying to feed their family and these are millions and millions and millions of people making this kind of cash and no one else is seeing a sense of it. 
so did another government. So kudos to them. Yeah, and I suppose we can actually link this exact uh, question then, obviously, onto something you said. So you said in the past two sections, you talked about uh, people not wanting to invest here because of lack of any form of certainty. I suppose that has actually now been echoed today by the uh, SA Reserve Bank governor, who's obviously increased our uh, interest points by 50 basis points. And he basically says that South Africa is now getting to a point where the interest rates are becoming prohibitive and actually threaten economic feasibility. Asked why we were in this position. Well, guess what he highlighted, Ramon? He said, well, the problem is we live in an uncertain environment monetary policy decisions will continue to be data dependent and sensitive to the balance of risks of the outlook. And obviously some of the outlooks that he's talked about are the random weirdo disaster which we've had in terms of our foreign policy to the US. So he even highlights, you know, we're actually in a position where our own inflation rates, our erosions of economic inputs, all of these things are basically due to the fact that there is no stability in this place. So it seems that he agrees with you. Problem is, they've now got to the maximum that they can they can really charge in terms of interest rates before they actually just start negatively impacting the economy. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, think about it. If you bought a house for 2 million rand in 2021, you're paying almost 7,000 rand more per month on the home loan. Your salary is not going up 7,000 rand per month since 2021. I mean, I think these interest rates, I'm, I'm all for high interest rates. Don't get me wrong. I think it's very important. I, I don't like this very low interest rate scenario you find in Europe and in America because you need to, you know, defend savers as well. But I, I don't see what the Saab can do going forward because if they hike interest rates more and more and more, there will be sort of no one borrowing for anything because it's just too expensive to borrow money now. It's too expensive to buy a car, too expensive to buy a house. So the economic sectors and activities of those sectors are definitely going to decline purely based on, well, the Saab only has one tool, and that's interest rates. Um, you know, we can go to like 20% like we did in the early 90s, but that's when sort of that caused a, a real revolution in politics, and I'm sure the ANC would not want that. No, cause the end of apartheid. And obviously what it would then do in South Africa is probably cause the end of the ANC. And that may have disastrous impacts because as we've seen, the ANC aren't really, how should we say, I'm not going to say not ready to go because they can't fight in terms of being kicked out of office. But we would, what we would see is that their departure wouldn't be as peaceful as the Nats and that the Nats didn't deliberately try to sabotage the bloody places and then leave. I think that ANC is kind of like that that uh, that warlord that gets kicked out of village and before he leaves, he salts the earth and uh, poisons the well. Leaves, but he does all the stuff that are basically going to mean that the uh, the village can't really thrive anyway because all of the things they need in order to survive have all been destroyed. And why do I raise this as a comment? Well, because we obviously know that South Africa is heavily dependent on a goa. And we've already talked about that in other podcasts. Well, it turns out that the one calming minister who's in charge of trade, industry, and competition, noticeably Ibrahim Patel, has now come out saying that South Africa needs to do absolutely everything it can in order to remain in Algoa. He says, we need to do anything we can do because it strengthens South Africa's positions in terms of exports to the US market and helps create more jobs locally. 
So apparently him and Gordon Guanaguana are going to fly over to the US and basically see who they can uh, obviously, you know, spend some time on the back alley underneath dark clouds and servicing individuals in order to stay there because they understand that it's going to be very difficult for South Africa to leave this trade group. What's your viewing? I think it goes largely, uh, I said this already, it's largely bullshit. It's like subsidies to stuff we don't need. It kills the local poultry industry. <clears throat> excuse me and then it makes you you know pay for your ford ranger twice one through a tax subsidy and then once or the you know the purchase price when you actually do buy it yes in terms of trade it's uh, uh, america's a huge partner but i think it's more of a gift and a donation to south africa rather than any material interest to america itself and and the ANC, as always is confused as well we'll give arms to russia or maybe we won't give arms no one actually knows there was nothing on the ship that is classified information, so we can't tell you. Like, that's literally what the ANC says. Like, sure, guys, sure. Right. And then Nothing happened there. Nobody was there, but they were definitely there. We can't tell you why they were there. Yeah, because it's classified. Subjudicate, and we're still appointing a judge for the commission inquiry into whether it happened or not, so... And so... he will report on that when Jesus comes back. Yes. Uh, funny enough, after the election, no doubt, if if we even get to that place. So, you know, Gonguana, the finance minister, is one of those sort of pragmatic ones. He stole 100 million rand from the unions like 20 years ago. And since then, he's becoming really practical, really pragmatic. He actually has cut the deficit quite a bit. And no doubt it's within, um, you know, it's good for him that Ogoa remains as is. I'm, I'm surprised that Ibrahim Patel has something to say because he is definitely the architect, along with Praveen, of our economic disaster. How can you have a communist who's head of trade. I mean, the guy doesn't know what trade is. He's a communist. But yeah, I don't think that's to be honest. See, I also found it rather interesting, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because in the same day, he said that we must do absolutely everything within our powers to ensure that we never, ever get kicked out of Ogoa, which obviously would assume that we would be prepared to uh, criticize Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Apparently, that's a step too far, even though we said anything, right? But apparently, anything isn't anything. The same day, he put a few, should we say, policies and new laws that he gazetted, right? And they were around regulation of companies. So I'm going to tell you a couple of these, and you tell me your thoughts. Uh, one of them was uh, he gave a change to the Companies Act, which requires companies to disclose the true owners of shares. So in other words, you know the idea that a company could be owned by another company, which would be a shell on the front and all that. Yeah, can't do that. No, he wants all the kind of people who own these companies to be upfront and known to the public. Like, so you know who the uh, what they would call the uh, the overall beneficial owner is. Americans don't do that, my friend. They really don't do that. I'm not really sure how many Americans are going to be keen for that. No, but that's what America does. Right, it doesn't do it, but it forces upon everyone else to do it. It's very much like that money laundering stuff after 9 11. They're like, Oh, we need to stop the funding of terrorism. So, here's all these acts you know, the global financial markets now need like FICA and, and all that bullshit. Once everyone else did it, America says, Cool, thanks, chaps. We're not going to do it, but uh, you know, thanks for playing along. So, America, I think it's sitting quite well to have the, the true ownership of a company in South Africa. But of course, they will never implement the same in their own country because they are hypocrites. So the next thing is, obviously, I'm going to just remind you of something before I tell you. 
And that is, do you remember when the Competition Commission basically said that, uh, or the Competition Tribunal basically said that in South Africa, they were not going to allow a deal for Burger King to be sold to a local company because of quotas. Do you remember that? I do remember that, yes. Well, apparently, the what was nicknamed after that debacle, the, basically the Communist Commission, has uh, now got greater powers to conduct markets inquiries. So what do you reckon that's all going to be about? So commies are going to have greater powers to ask questions about what companies do. I'll see how that's going to go wrong. Yeah, right on brand for the ANC. Nothing, nothing new. Absolutely. So remember, we all started this out by saying basically the Minister of Trade and bullshit has basically wants to do absolutely anything to stay in Ogoa. These don't really sound like Ogoa-type policies so far. Um, the other thing which I found rather surprising was the gazetting of provisions to exempt energy producers and energy users from aspects of the Competition Act. This will enable them to cooperate without fear of contravening anti-collusion provisions. This has been done in the interest of solving the energy crisis. So basically, they're allowing people to basically be anti-competitive and to have forms of collusion. Now, by people, we basically mean it would allow the ANC to dictate certain policies to private entities, because we all know that's what's going to happen, right? And then you can't say, oh, but you're being anti-competitive, because they'll just be like, yeah, but we're allowed to do that. So what do you think of that? Well, I don't know. I read it differently, because the way I read it, energy, the exempt energy producers and energy users from aspects of the Competition Act. So are they maybe not saying that if you want no, to be on the Competition Act? Yeah, no. Competition Act. That's what I said. So are they not saying that energy producers, i.e. the independent ones, now that there's no limits on whatever megawatt generation capacity you've got or had before, now you can literally build, you know, modular nuclear reactors and, and own all of them. And you won't no, this is all of the competition act. No, because this is basically in terms of uh, the collusion between entities. That's what it's done. It's stopping them from being basic bond for colluding with other entities. So just to bring you up to speed, basically, according to the Competition Act, if I own a company and I sell watts at, let's say, 10 rand a watt, okay, I know that's not how it works, but let's just say it's 10 rand a watt, and I call you up because you own a company and they say, hey, mate, what do you sell it at? The mere fact we're having that, comp that discussion, that's illegal. That's price collusion. We're not allowed to do that, okay? Whereas now they will be able to. They will be able to all sit down in a room and negotiate the price that they want to charge their units out at. No, no companies are usually allowed to do that. That's price collusion. Yeah, but who can do that? Energy producers. Who are the energy producers? Energy producers. Yes. All the private. Well, anyone. I mean, assuming it would even include ESCOM, right? So now ESCOM could go to them and basically say, this is what you must charge. That still wouldn't be collusion. Yeah, no, I think you're reading it. I mean, the way I read it, this is like private energy producers. Like, say you've got a huge solar company or, or you sell it as a service and you charge, you know, to, to rent a kilowatt or whatever to your residential clients. And then you go to your mate who has the same company and say, what do you charge? Two rand. Okay, cool. I charge two rand as well. Um, if we collude on the pricing, we can have more people off the grid. That's what it reads like to me. And that's not a bad thing. 
Yeah, I think you're looking at it in the eyes of it being, should we say, people doing it for the basis of being positive. But that's not generally how these things work. How these things really work in the real corporate world is that I go to you and I go, what do you charge? And you go, two, two rand. What do you charge? And I go, well, I charge three. Tell you what, if you set yours to five, I'll do mine at five. That way we both make far more money. And how about if you reduce your output to, say, 30%, I'll reduce mine to 30%, then we can constrain the system and then people are going to have to pay that far for end because at least they get electricity, right? This is how actual proper collusion works. That's why it's illegal. So the mere fact that they're allowing collusion, this is very weird because it's deeply anti-competitive and usually doesn't work very well for the people that buy services. That's the reason you have whole, the whole competition stuff in the first place. So isn't it weird that a commie is coming out there and basically allowing forms of tyrannical price control it's bizarre man well i don't know we've got two different interpretations on this and without uh, seeing the actual regulations it's difficult to have a a proper understanding of it but i think this is i mean i think i'm right <laughs> in in terms of this so i mean who knows but don't worry because the last thing ibrahim patel wants to put on the table byron and is the regulations on new standards for using energy-efficient LED light bulbs in offices and homes. So LED is basically anti-human. It's very bright. It's very white. Yes, you get the warm white, but it's orange. And you're not supposed to have so much light around you. But now you can't have a normal halogen light, which is much more pretty. Now you need LED lights everywhere. So I'm against this. Really on aesthetic for aesthetic purposes. Yeah, but I suppose the reason that he wants them is because they use less electricity. They're only like four four watts to power a lot. So he's probably thinking it will help us all save the amount of electricity that uh, we're using for Mescom, which can't provide electricity. Or Fikilin Balula just has a brand new shipment of LED light bulbs from China. So come on. I can just agree with that one. And you don't say, Oh, there's nefarious the you know, there's something nefarious about it. Of course there's something nefarious. They spent all their Russian oligarch money on fucking the three shipments of light bulbs from China, LED ones. That's most likely. They probably, they probably did. And there's, their shipment is the only ones that actually meet the new standards. I'm laughing because that's probably true. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But somehow this is going to make us not being kicked out of a goer. I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't get it. It's like, okay, we want to do everything possible with our goer. Let's put this shit on the table. Okay. LED light bulbs for offices. LED light bulbs. You can have price collusion. Don't worry. We want to know who owns your companies. We uh, also want to give the commie commission more powers to investigate what you do. But please don't kick us out of our goer because we really need it. You know what they could have done, man? They could have been like, ah, how about we drop E and no more expropriation and we'll give you some monetary certainty. And, you know, yeah, we're not actually going to cozy up to countries that uh, you don't really deem to be, you know, suitable in terms of your political... Yeah, how about you just do those things? That would definitely not get you kicked out of Ogo. They'd probably, you know, increase trade with you. But no, we did this shit instead. <laughs> I don't know, man. I did get light bulbs for a goer. That's the title of this podcast. Yeah. So I got to ask you, 
South Africa burns on burns on fire and you had to go somewhere. Would you go to Namibia? Would you go to Botswana? You ever been? I've been to both countries and I would live in both in a heartbeat. What? I'm just curious, mate, because obviously current news is that Namibia wants uh, people to apply to go live there because um, no one lives in Namibia. <laughs> oh, no one lives in Namibia. It's as big as South Africa and got like 2 million people. Uh, so yeah, apparently Namibia is after uh, people to, to consider going and uh, demonstrating there. Please bring your money because they need your money. All your money, take all of it. What do you think of that? Uh, I would, but I saw they just legalized same-sex marriage, so that's me out. I'm not. I mean, they found oil, more oil than Saudi Arabia, and then the next day they legalized same-sex marriage. The Americans are already there, Byron. I'm not going. <laughs> it didn't take long for the Americans to arrive, did they? <laughs> but it brings hope to yeah. Uganda and the Kenyans. Didn't Uganda basically... Like it's a death penalty to sodomize someone, even consensual. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. Didn't they even say? Didn't they even say that if you like go out there and admit to being gay, that then like you're doing like unholy things with vegetables and stuff, and <laughs> you know, like you are gay, you are gay. Yeah. <laughs> right? We've all seen it. We've all so seen the play with the excretionary system. Excretionary. That's system. right. That Why are you doing this in contravention of God's law? <laughs> LGBTQI where's the H for heterosexual so yeah I don't know man like as you say on the on the plus side apparently in the, Namibia actually would like some people to live there because no one fucking lives there mate apparently half of Namibia is not really that habitable anyway it's like just the desert isn't it uh, okay hold on so I made a mistake so homosexuality is not decriminalized, but the high or the Supreme Court in Namibia has basically said, uh, "Oh, they recognise same-sex marriages concluded abroad." So that's it. So it's not legal in Namibia, but if you married like to another man or another woman, like in South Africa, they'll recognise their marriage if you move over. I think that's what is going on. Maybe. So does that mean you're back into Namibia? Yes. I'm, I'm applying tomorrow. What are your skills? Based videos. Cool, you. You're in. Remind me though. What's what's the who's the government in Namibia? Aren't there a bunch of commies? There are a bunch of commies. They're called Swapo, and they basically like a offshoot of the ANC. It's not as useless. I mean, how useless can you be to two million people? There's not a lot to fuck up there. No, there isn't. I think what's really interesting, though, about um, Namibia, as I'm sure you know, Ramon, uh, Namibia has electricity, mate. What do you think of that? Yeah, a lot of Saudi countries have electricity. Even Mozambique has electricity with no power cuts. When I went to Mozambique in March, and I said, what do you think of South Africa to Mozambique? And they're like, how the fuck... And you have, like, no electricity. It's so alien to them. It's kind of true, though. I mean, if you actually look at it and you consider it, like, we're, like, supposedly the most westernized nation or the most, um, 
industrialized nation in Africa, and yet we can't even power our industry because electricity is fucked. I suppose the the other interesting thing is, uh, you know, we have to look at the the GDP. South Africa's GDP is obviously on the the climb. Four hundred billion is estimated at, and uh, Namibia is uh, obviously it's on the increase with uh, thirteen billion. Which, uh, yeah, what do you think of that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, South Africa has no interest to do anything, but if you've got gay marriage, that solves a lot of problems. I don't know what more. What do you want me to say? Or about the numbers on Namibia? Because I really don't give a shit at all. But yes, I would move. Yeah. Uh, I would move there if I could. Though, you, you, I just hope whoever wants to move there likes sand, because that's all there is there, literally. It's nothing else. Mm-hmm. That's why I said I think uh, a big problem with Namibia is uh, half of it um, you can't actually live in, can you? Because it's like the majority kind of desert. It's probably why they've got a population problem. But uh, according to their population numbers, yeah, two two point five million people living there. And according to South Africa's official stats, sixty point six million people living here. Although to be fair, it's probably more like ninety-six million people living here because we all know the other half of uh, undocumented. Huh? Yeah, undocumented. Just call them illegal immigrants. I don't know why undocumented is like a white PC term for illegal alien. Just use a correct term, Byron. Why are you being so PC? Well, what can I say? Oh well. With that all being said, maybe we should uh, take a drive to Namibia and do some filming. What do you think? I think we should. In my car, <laughs> which is a proper car. Because your car, we hardly made it to run yet. So, fuck it. Next time we're taking one. Yeah. Sport, sport, sports cars up those roads, mate. Not going to go. Suddenly wouldn't bloody drive to Namibia one. You got a gay car, Byron. Just admit it. If you say so, mate. <laughs> if you say so. I might have a gay-looking car, but hey, the haircut. We all know that you're a gay icon. Just remember. haircuts. Like, I got a pink pen. It's on my daughters. But this haircut... <laughs> Was cut by a very based French-speaking Congolese guy who has like five children, so he's definitely not gay. So how about that? He's probably got seven, mate. We don't know where yours are from. <laughs> 30 not years. Absolutely very worried. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. It was a real mishmash of absolute bullshit, but hopefully you found it a little bit entertaining in some material way thank you for listening everyone and please do support us on substack if you really like what we do and of course subscribe to our youtube channel it is linked down below in the description thanks for listening everyone cheers thanks cheers